Well, hello, hello, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. This is episode one, season three. Season three. Who thought we were going to ever make it to season three? Wow. And uh, in the co-host chair, it's a brand new face, a brand new voice, but you already know him. It's David Russell. How you doing, David? Hey, I'm good, David. How are you? Never better. And uh, we have got... Uh, a guest who I think has opened uh, every season since the first one, uh, Randall Rouser. How you doing, Randall? I'm doing fantastic. It's it's awesome to be back again and join you both in a wonderful, exciting season three to look forward to. Yes, and uh, we uh, have a, a, a second guest. Uh, he is uh, Randall's alter ego, his inner atheist. Don't worry, people. I've got a psychiatrist on speed dial if this gets ugly. Um, Don't ignore well, the name, it's, David. It's Mia. Right? Yeah. It's Mia. I was going to bring a puppet, a little hand puppet, but I thought that might be a little weird. So. <laughs> Not on this show. <laughs> uh, you got you to do better than that if you want to qualify as weird on this show. Um so uh, before we get into that, uh, it's a lot of fun. Folks, if you, ha- if you don't know, Randall has written uh, yet another book. Randall is a book writing machine. Uh, and uh, this book is uh, Conversations with My Inner Atheist. My Inner Atheist, uh, Inner Atheist M-I-A. Uh, he uh, uses Mia as an acronym, so you might hear us refer to Mia uh, from time to time. Uh, so that's what that refers to. Uh, it's a great book. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Uh, there's a lot to enjoy here. There's a lot to dig into. And um, uh, I want to ask him a few questions about the book. We're going to talk about some of the themes. Uh, so that's that's getting ready. I'll leave a link uh, in the uh, uh, show notes so that you know where to go to buy uh, the book. I know that it's on uh, Amazon, Randall. Is it anywhere else? Uh, do you, uh, are you selling it on your site? Uh, I just have links through to Amazon on my site. So, yeah, okay. Amazon's the big dog on the street these days. <laughs> okay. Uh, per- uh, perfect. So, uh, speaking of uh, books and Amazon, uh, you might notice that the three of us, we have uh, one thing in common. Uh, we are all a part uh, of a book project, and I want to mention it uh, here. Uh, frankly, I probably would not have mentioned it if it wasn't for the events uh, of just a couple of days ago. Uh, it is called Surviving Corona. Uh, Surviving Corona. And um, Randall uh, let that book uh, off with the first chapter. And so if you're a Christian and you don't want to get very far, you can just read the first chapter and um, you'll get you'll get Randall. If you dare read further, uh, you'll also get David Russell in there. And if you read all the way to the end, <laughs> you will find my um, uh, contributions uh, to that work. And uh, the reason it's important right now, as we all know, uh, our our most beloved president uh, has uh, taken ill. He uh, has been tested positive for corona. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This is a man who has access to more testing than you will ever have access to. He has access to the most modern, the most updated, uh, the fastest results, the best results. Uh, this man has access that you're simply never going to have access to. Um, he got Corona. 
uh, and many of his aides around him uh, got corona. Uh, right now, uh, he is in a uh, military hospital, one of the best hospitals in the world, and you are not going to go there. So if you get sick, uh, you're, you're not going to get that kind of treatment. Right now, uh, it is said that his symptoms are very mild, almost insignificant, and yet he is receiving uh, some of the most advanced experimental treatment that may never come to market. You are never going to get this treatment, people. So I want you to think about this for a moment. If the man who is the most protected man, who has unlimited resources, unlimited testing, uh, and unlimited treatments, is in a hospital with corona, what do you think your chances are? Uh, it's not good. Surviving corona is not going to help you not get corona, but it will help you uh, think about what it means uh, to suffer in this way in this world. Uh, what will help you not get corona, I'm just going to say it, this is not FDA approved, but I'm just going with it anyway, social distance and wear a damn mask. Just do that. Uh, I love uh, some of the things that CNN are putting out. They talk about a mask. They just put a mask on the screen. They say some things about the mask. Uh, they say this is not, <laughs> this is a mask. This is not a political statement. Uh, folks, it's, it's a mask. It's not a political statement. It's your health. It's the health of the people that you love. Um, I want everybody, uh, both skeptics and seekers, to survive corona so that we can argue for years to come. Uh, and, uh, and David, so, David, if mm -hmm. I could just interject real quick, sure. I think this is like a rare moment for us because I'm actually in agreement with you. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, oh, wear boring. your mask. <laughs> Distance. So I guess you guys are Democrats. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact. Um, yeah. no, I'll just say that in Canada, it's not a political statement to wear our masks. So you're right. It's, it's public health and common sense. Do what you can. And and from a Christian perspective, yep. I mean, this should be just from a human perspective. It's just not worrying about yourself. It's also worrying about the fact that you could be carrying coronavirus. You could be infectious and asymptomatic and you could be spreading it to other people all the time without knowing it. If you care about your neighbor, you should be wearing your mask to protect your neighbor as well. Thank you so much for that. And um, so those of you who have been spamming the comment section with political talk uh, for the last couple of weeks, by the way, I don't consider that spamming at all. Uh, we are going to uh, get political sometime this season. Uh, we're going to talk about this. Uh, I don't. I haven't talked to David Russell about this. We've, we've got a little bit of agenda that we're working on. Politics isn't really on it. But, um, you know, politics is a real thing that's happening in this world, and I don't know that it's ever been more important than it is uh, these days. And so that's something that will be covered at some point. I just want to separate that from what I'm saying right now. This is not politics. Uh, this is just common sense. Uh, help yourself, help the people you love, social distance, wear a mask. And uh, one final thing, when you do uh, buy Surviving Corona, I'm having a little bit of trouble with uh, Stripe. Uh, and Stripe is the company that allows me to do things like Apple Pay, Visa, uh, Mascara, all, all of the credit cards and things like that. Um, and so if you want to make uh, donations, uh, please use PayPal right now. And uh, all of that stuff gets uh, funneled directly to the Red Cross. Uh, what is not announced, I'll just mention it. I usually, when I get ready to move donations to the Red Cross, I'll double the donations uh, from uh, my own pocket or add some to it. Um, you, I am not a rich man. Uh, people. And so some of you have hurt me badly 
uh, with large donations uh, because <laughs> it's, it's been very hard to match those. Um, I, I invite you to hurt me more. Uh, use PayPal, though, and uh, also if you want to get the book, you can get it directly from my site. Uh, it's uh, skepticsseekers.squarespace.com, uh, but uh, you can do just as well to get it from Amazon, uh, get the Kindle version. Uh, and so if you want to use um, Visa MasterCard, Discover, whatever, on Kindle, that's that's fine. Uh, but otherwise, on my site, just use uh, the PayPal for the moment, uh, if you please. And with that, uh, let's get uh, right into the topic, uh, shall we? So, Randall Rouser, you have uh, just written um, a, a conversations uh, with uh, my inner atheist. I had a couple of questions. Before we get to the questions that you actually um, asked yourself, let me see if I can turn off all of my beeps and bloops here. Um, so you're inner atheist. I have I have had conversation with you in the past. Uh, those uh, who uh, have uh, come over from the unbelievable uh, crowd may have heard us. Uh, on the unbelievable a few years back, as uh, we were debating uh, Justin's book. Uh, unbelievable why I, I remain a Christian after 10 years and uh, then uh, my group's book um, still unbelievable um, why we've remained not Christians after this you know, I don't even remember what the name of the book was <laughs> um, you you um, you were a tough customer uh, in that in that debate Um you know, we all came out and shook hands, and you just started off with a punch right to the face, and and then you got and then you got rough from there. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was it was actually quite a lot of fun, um, but I, you were not a guy uh, who I thought to myself uh, has an an inner atheist or, or has some real uh, conversation uh, with himself about that. So tell me, tell me about this. Is your inner atheist just a, um, just a tactic to straw man uh, atheist arguments, or, or does this represent a real part of yourself uh, with things that you have to, to struggle with? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I don't think there's any straw manning in the book. And if there is, uh, I'd invite you to point it out in the course of our exchange today. It is a two-parter. So on the on the one part, there are certain issues that I question that I've always questioned. I wrote another book a few years ago called What's So Confusing About Grace, where I describe trying to figure out what Christianity is over 40 years and gradually changing and revising my understanding in light of what seems to me new evidence that I, I need to consider. So I've always been a work in progress, and I think that that's a sign of intellectual maturity that people are revising and rethinking their beliefs as they go. So on the one hand, my inner atheist is a, is a good foil for my own internal introspective processes as I'm trying to figure out what I believe and revise particular beliefs in light of new evidence and data that I need to consider. There's a second part of it as well, and that is um, to try to steel man rather than straw man. Uh, my intellectual opponents, people I disagree with. And so my inner atheist also is the voice of the, in a sense, the outsider that is raising that other views that I would have to consider. 
So those may not be issues I personally struggle with in some cases, but other people do hold those views and I need to consider how I'm going to respond to them. And I'll just say in terms of the punch in the face, that was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, everyone uh, seems to have had fun punching me in the face over the course of a lifetime. Uh, And so no one has come away with that, not having enjoyed that. Um, David Russell, are you going to punch me in the face today? (laughs) No, sir. No, sir. Well, you know, I don't I don't punch. I don't punch guys with eye patches, man. Yeah, your time you in Skeptics and Seekers there. is quite young. Uh, Dale <laughs> used to feel like that, too. Uh, he he learned to punch in the face. Um, took him a while. You'll get there. Um, so, Randall, one other question before we jump uh, in there, because I, I do want to be fair uh, to the book. I, I think that there were times when your inner atheist maybe rolled over a little bit too easy. Uh, and if it was a boxing match, I would have uh, I would have sent him back in there after a stern talking to. But there were other times uh, when I thought. Um, uh, so it, in the in the end, at the conclusion, your inner atheist conclude uh, uh, accused you of playing the mystery card uh, all the time. I thought that was a little unfair. I don't think you played the mystery card all the time. But there were a few times when it seems that you punt it to that mystery card. And the way I see the mystery card. Uh, myself is a person not really having the answers, but having to say God has his reasons, and I'm not sure what it is. And I think there were a few times where that ended up being your uh, position. And um, I I actually found that a matter of uh, integrity uh, when I, when I saw places like that, because it's, it's you not pretending to have answers uh, that you didn't have. And so having said that, was there any particular points or questions that you brought up in the book uh, where you would say, you know, this is something that is an active point of uh, study for me? I think it's fair to say that to some degree they all are. Like, I don't think that anything is quite tied up in a nice little bowl when I've set it back on the shelf and I don't have to re- revisit it again. I think some of the issues are much more expansive and in and are probably going to be more central. So uh, the problem of evil There's one chapter devoted to this huge topic. Well, that is is always going to be very near the center of any conversation. Some of the other ones are a little bit more idiosyncratic. So, for example, antinatalism. So if 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 it's possible that you have a child that could end up in hell forever, is that a reason not to have children? Because it's sort of when you think about the Christian, you think about a Pascalian sort of wager, right? That for the Christian, the stakes are inestimably high in terms of your child could end up with a, a life of eternal joy or eternal misery. Well, then should you roll the dice and have a child in that regard? That's a much more constrained, narrow question. I think um, so it's less likely you'd be wrestling with that one. But I think all of them, they are going to come up from time to time. And there are people that are very reasonable people that have thought very hard about those same kind of questions I talk about who end up on the other side of the fence. And the mere fact that those people are there suggests that I need to come back again because when reasonable people disagree with you, you shouldn't be too dismissive of it, right? You should continue to, to wrestle with it and try to see it from their perspective. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's do this thing, uh, shall we? So I pulled out nine I think it's t- uh, nine topics. There's a good chance we won't get to all of them. Um, I'm doing a, a write-up right now. By the time this goes up, there, there'll probably be a write-up where I uh, pull three of them out 
uh, for some uh, conversation. And so let's start with those three right off the bat and um, if I can find them and um, see where we go. Uh, once again, it's it's not my intention to uh, really give these a full treatment, but rather uh, to just, just kind of look at the issue, open it up for discussion. And I expect most of this conversation to happen uh, on the discussion board. Commenters, you know what to do. Um, the first one uh, is uh, chapter six. Uh, if the Bible includes immoral laws, how can it be inspired? Uh, so I think, I think this was probably my favorite of the questions uh, because it's, it's a deal breaker for me. It's one of those things where if you don't have a good answer to, then you know all sides can walk away. The game is over. Uh, just flip the chessboard; it's done. Um, so it it starts with a hypothetical: if the Bible uh, contains immoral laws, um, so you were you were not, in fact, suggesting that the Bible does contain uh, immoral laws. But I just want to take it uh, at that hypothetical level at the moment. If it does contain immoral laws, would you agree that that would then constitute um, proof enough for the average person that the Bible is not inspired? Well, actually, let me say just two things. One, one just to preface the entire book briefly and then, and then answer that question specifically. And the one thing I just want to underscore about the entire book, it's not like when I grew up— um, 30, 40 years ago within the evangelical church, we're always looking for sort of Bible answer books that, okay, that's how you think about that. That's how you think about that. In my last answer, I, I kind of wanted to stress that, no, these are things you need to keep coming back to. And the one thing I want to underscore throughout our exchange is that in each one of these chapters, I'm not attempting to give like the final word on anything, but rather to encourage each one of us to have an introspective conversation with our own beliefs, whatever those are, and to begin to reflect on them. Uh, because, again, there are always reasonable people who disagree with us. Now, in terms of this specific question, I think I actually did stake out a position where I said that there are particular perspectives expressed by particular biblical authors that we do consider to be immoral today. So um, some of the examples in the chapter would be... Uh, for, for example, the stoning of children, right? There's, there's, a, there's a declaration there under certain circumstances that it is morally permissible to stone children. And then I, I quote from a biblical scholar who says, yes, this sounds really horrible, but if uh, we did not, if, if the parents did not respond to the child's insubordination, then that would be this really horrific offense against the community and against God. And I point out that the label for that practice is honor killing. And if honor killing occurred in other circumstances, and I give a contemporary example of a Muslim father and his son who, who murdered his daughter because of honor in Toronto, and how Canadians collectively were appalled at this act. And, but the logic is similar, that, that, well, you need to act because this is insubordination, this is dishonoring the family. And so I do think that there are perspectives addressed like that where honor killing, that it is a problem. And no, I don't believe that the perspective, that the inclusion in the Bible of morally problematic perspectives that we currently deny, 
I don't think that that constitutes a defeater to the Bible being God's revelation, because it all depends on the reason that those views are included within the Bible, and that's what we have to have a conversation about. Sure. Uh, so before uh, turning it over to uh, David, uh, tell me what those defeaters are. I mean, not defeaters. Uh, tell me why the inclusion of immoral laws marked by thus saith the Lord do not, in fact, constitute um, a lack of inspiration. So the question is, is what is the Bible there for, what it is doing? How do you interpret the various uh, documents, perspectives that are included within it? And in the chapter, I argue that there is a moral developmental pr uh, perspective included throughout the Bible, which we can understand under the label of accommodation, that God enters into history and accommodates to particular understandings at particular times, allows people to hold certain understandings of him and his will even that are false, and he can include those perspectives within the Bible for some other purpose. So as one simple example would be, well, the psalmist says many false things about God. The psalmist says that God hates sinners, that God wants to destroy sinners. And in fact, Christians believe, no, God doesn't hate sinners. So then why does God include the perspective of the psalmist that expresses a false statement about God? Well, I think he does it not to teach us how to think about God, but rather to teach us how to experience suffering and be honest in our own suffering and pain and alienation against others. But when we actually want to know how to love our neighbor, we look to Jesus. When we actually want to know what God's attitude is toward the sinner, we look to Jesus. And so time and again, in all of these questions, I say as a Christian that Jesus ought to be our, as I say in the chapter, our lighthouse or our hermeneutical lodestar, the guide that we use to navigate these other morally problematic perspectives. Okay. Uh, David? Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the chapter. I, I just want to first say I enjoyed what I'm reading so far, Randall. It's pretty good. Uh we have similar backgrounds. You came from Pentecostal. I, I came from Pentecostal uh, when I first started out, and it turned to a word of faith movement pretty quickly. <laughs> so uh, I hear you, man. I'm, uh, and and the response in, in this particular chapter, you know, it, it's apologetic. You know, I mean, you have uh, that whole idea of accommodation and stuff like that, and I think that's that's the route, you know, I would take in that as well. Um, I might go a little further, but, um, that's just different in methodologies. There. <laughs> so, uh, my, my concern, uh, with the way that you deal with that, uh, Randall is that it's not intuitive. Now I don't mind things that are not intuitive, uh, in, in science. Okay. The, the world is very complicated place. Uh, there are a lot of true things about nature that are simply not intuitive. Uh, but I do need uh, instructions from a God uh, uh, pertaining to eternal life or damnation to be rather more intuitive than quantum physics. Uh, and so if the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, uh, this is this is what the you know it has God directly speaking, um, or it has a prophet of God saying this is what God told me to tell you, and it turns out that that is not, in fact, a, a direct uh, speaking from God. Then the Bible has a bigger problem uh, than the fact that it contains 
what seems to be an immoral command. Uh, it is a dishonest and unreliable witness. And at that point, I, th- I think that you have to scrap the whole enterprise or you have to tell people, uh, you know, how and where to get their free uh, Bible scholar degree so that they can read the thing. Uh, and I, I think that is very problematic. So, yes, your, your answer may, in fact, be correct. But I still think that uh, that pretty much torpedoes the Bible as a, a book where words of life can be uh, read and understood. Well, one thing I would say is, is uh, another chapter that would be pertinent to your comment would be chapter three. If the gospel is simple, why doesn't the Bible simply present it? Um, but, uh, you know, I would say we could say another book. Let, let's look at uh, Animal Farm. Well, if you read Animal Farm, it's just a story about some animals that rebel against a farmer. And that's the intuitive way for a reader to read it. But then it turns out Actually, it's also an allegory, and it's talking about economic relations within the context of the rise of communism. Now, a reader who says, I don't see that in the book. All I see is a fight between animals and a farmer who's treating them badly. Then I would say, yeah, but texts can sometimes be doing something a little bit more complicated than a a reader might initially think on first reading. This is why we need actually communities, that the Bible is not a simple book, and we need to read books like the Bible within community. When it comes to the Bible, I would say that the way you should read it is by keeping in mind what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, that all scriptures God breathed, and then he explains what he means by that. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so the the thing to keep in mind is that you are reading the Bible well if you are becoming more like Jesus in those features of your character. You're reading the Bible poorly if you're becoming less like Jesus in terms of those points of character. And sadly, many Christians have read the Bible in such a way that drew them away from the character of Jesus. And that's a sign that they're reading it badly. Right. Well, and I have no problem with taking parts of the Bible as allegory if it's clear that this is allegory. Uh, So once again, clarity needs to to be a part oh, yeah, but of that. clear clear to whom right like not to so some people think okay that's obviously like people maybe they come to the parables of jesus some people thought those were obviously allegories some not the fact is the text can be difficult to read but it just seems to me that that the perspective you have here it sounds a little bit like coming from a fundamentalist background and i don't mean that as a as an insult but well, i do, I do mean come that, from a fundamentalist background okay so so, so. The, the the fundamentalist it is the idea that uh, sort of the literal there should always be a literal, straightforward interpretation to biblical texts, and you should always look for that as the default interpretation. And in fact, that's just an incorrect way to read the Bible. It's a complex library. Now, you could certainly ask the question, which I think is also um, in what you've said, is why would God give us a complex library? Fair question, but. Uh, the first thing we have to do is appreciate that the text is complicated. Right, but I'm not. I'm not even arguing against that point. Uh, you can talk about allegory and various literary uh, structures, and um, you know we can we can debate whether whether that's a good description of the Bible or not, or whether that's a good plan for delivering this message. But when you say "Thus saith the Lord," you're you're doing something else from a literary perspective at that point. Uh, you're you're a news reporter reporting on what a person of interest said, and there's no room for oh, but he didn't really say that. Um, having been a news reporter 
that's a fireable offense. Um, and uh, if you're not reporting news, you're a historian and you're saying uh, this is what this person said. We have documents uh, in his own hand. We know that this is what he said. You are, you are declaring something literally was said by a person when you say that this is this person saying it. And so I don't think that uh, in those places where we have some of these commands that we're talking about now, I don't think there's as much room for uh, literary complexity uh, as as you uh, suggest. Well, yeah, I think two things. First of all, uh, one point I've made is, is that uh, because there's accommodation clearly present in the text, I mean, any Christians who's sort of as understood these issues recognizes that there's a gradual understanding of who God is over time, and thus the theology of people changes. And so Jesus comes along, let's say in the Sermon on the Mount, and says, it has been said to you, but I say to you this, and he offers a fuller understanding, which often diverges from the understanding of the original human authors. Uh, so we, we have to keep that in mind, that just because the original human author had a particular perspective in the Old Testament doesn't mean that we're beholden to that perspective. Now, you've uh, talked about, well, thus saith the Lord, as obviously to be read as um, a journalist just providing a transcription of a past historical event. In fact, it is much more complicated than that. Uh, Yoram Hazoni, in his book, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, points out that that, that when the, the Hebrew prophets use that language, it very much parallels when Greek philosophers like Parmenides use similar invocatory language to call forth wisdom and then to speak out the voice of wisdom. And so Yoram Hazoni argues as a Hebrew Bible scholar that we need to understand Isaiah in the spirit of a philosopher of the ancient world operating within the literary structures of the ancient world. Uh, so we have to be very careful about reading our contemporary assumptions about the text back into these texts that were written two or 3,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, David, did you have a final uh, thought on that? Yeah, I, I think Randall answered the question the best best he could because uh, for me, David, you have to get specific, you know, and we, we'd have to flesh out each uh, thus saith the Lord saying because we're all students here and it takes a lot to learn. Um, it could, that's, that's anything in life. You know, you have to learn to do simple math, you know, and then graduate to calculus and, you know, so on and so on. I mean, these things take time. They take study. And there are things that are hard, hard to read in the Bible that you're just going to have to study and look into. You're going to have to discover it. That's the way it's set up. Okay, I'll uh, I'll give you the last word on that. And um, just to be fair, uh, David, uh, would you like to pick out uh, one of these uh, for me to grill Randall on? <laughs> because I've got right. I've got three in particular that I want to make sure I cover. But uh, I also <laughs> want to make sure that uh, you guys get to um, cover some of the things that are interest uh, interesting to you. So what what do you have for us, David? I really liked the how did Adam and Eve turn T-Rex into a predator. I really liked that one. I was looking so, at that one right. <laughs> just saying, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could go with that one. Okay. Uh, so let me, let me set up this question a little bit. Um, so uh, Randall's uh, inner atheist, uh, otherwise known as Mia, um, I, can't, I can't stop thinking Mama Mia. Um, every time I saw that in the book, it just, I'm, I'm an ABBA fan. 
Um, ditto, ditto. <laughs> so I've got every album <laughs> that they uh, that they've done. So anyway, uh, guilty pleasure. I also have uh, all of uh, Boys to Men, All for One, Backstreet Boys. Um, I'm a I'm a boy band fanatic. <laughs> Next year, uh, anyway, talking about uh, BTS. <laughs> yeah, don't get me started. K-pop <laughs> for the win. K-pop. Um, right. These My are things that people like never wanted to know about me. Um, so, um, how how did Adam and Eve turn T Rex into a predator? Is a um, is a really fun one uh, that you dealt with, and I think the the background uh, information here is. Uh, a, a conflict as to whether you believe uh, that uh, a that we have a young Earth or an old Earth with that had evolutionary process, and then b if we have an old Earth with some type of evolutionary process, um, you know T Rex came before Adam and Eve, and there was no death and decay in the world before Adam and Eve sinned. That's the that's the linchpin here. So if Adam and Eve's sin caused the world to fall. How did that make T-Rex a predator way back before there was an Adam and Eve? Um, Randall, uh, thumbs up to Mia uh, for that question. This is one of those places where I think a lot of Christians have a deep cognitive dissonance that they have certain things that they confess in terms of belief and yet they've never paused, pushed the pause button to think, well, I also believe these things about natural history. And so how do I bring these two worlds together? And so Mia kind of crashes them together. And I think that we all need to do that. So the, the idea of tying Earth history and specifically uh, the existence of death, predation, carnivory, parasitism, natural evil and suffering in nature, all of those things to the actions of to the willful volitional actions of two human agents that lived between 10,000 years ago, or uh, if you're a certain old earth creationist, they try to put Adam and Eve at 50,000 years ago, <clears throat> makes little difference. It's still an extraordinary supposition because you've got several hundred million years, it would seem, of, of death before then. So I don't think that young earth creationism is, is, is really a plausible option at all here uh, myself. And so I think that you have to think, well, then we're going to accept a fossil record that pre-exists the existence of human beings. And how do you do that? I do note that William Dembski offers one view that I don't find very helpful at all. And that's the idea to think that God created with natural evil and suffering and death because he knew later on Adam and Eve would fall. And I think that that's that's just a, to me a very strained kind of way of dealing with the problem. So how do you deal with it? Well, I think one way to, to do with it is to say, okay, so what is, how should we understand the, the fall language in Genesis 3? And one way to understand it is simply that it is what we would call mythic language. And myth here meaning it's it's talking not about, like people often think colloquially that myth, oh, it means, oh, it's just false. No. Myth here is a story that conveys universal import. And the universal import of Genesis 3 is that there is universal alienation from God, a failure to live up to the moral perfection to which we've been called, 
And so we then Christianity, of course, offers the redress to deal with that issue. And that's what the issue is. It's not that there was some point of a fall in the past. There may have been, there still could have been. I mean, there are models that talk about the existence of pre-Adamites, and then Adam was the first elect human being uh, to represent the whole human species in evolutionary history. You could take that move if you want. I'm not that convicted either way, but I think that we just need to recognize the main point of Genesis 3 is to communicate universal alienation from God rather than to communicate there was a time when this happened. Now, and then in terms of how you explain natural evil, I think that you can look at Genesis 1. One thing, there are two different ways, basically, to read Genesis 1. One way is to read it as uh, God created a good creation with potential to develop and, and further on. And the other way is to read it as God created something perfect in the beginning. Genesis 1 doesn't actually say God created perfect. He said he created good. And so that's the view of Irenaeus is the view that God created good, but with room for development. And that actually could fit pretty well with an evolutionary paradigm. So I think that we could just say when we understand these in light of natural history, then we should adjust our understanding of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 just as we adjust our understanding <laughs> just as we adjust our understanding of of when the Bible talks about ascension for example of Jesus in light of the development of heliocentrism right so when science developed we then revise some aspects of our theology as it's required okay David, so do you need to do you, do you need to stop and put on your mask i uh it's it's for your protection. So if you feel <laughs> sorry, I just thought I'd break the ice. You know, yeah. right. <laughs> you know this thing has a mute button on it somewhere, <laughs> but I'm I'm afraid if I go dinking around with this thing, I I hate to think of what's going to happen to the recording. So, um, yeah. So here's um, I I just want to add another log to that particular fire. So I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time refuting uh, this one. I would say that I don't I don't buy any of that. Uh, I think the <laughs> I think the by the clearer, plainer reading of the Bible. Remember, I was a fundamentalist. People um, is that Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, and in bringing sin, one of the results of sin was uh, death and decay. Uh, and one of the things specifically that was said in the Genesis story uh, is that thorns would be. Uh, part part of the repercussions, and so we have this idea that we've got a world without thorns, uh, for instance. And I I don't buy that for for a moment. And so I don't think that you can get an evolutionary story and thorns only happening uh, ten thousand years ago. And so you you have to play the myth card pretty um, uh, ad hoc. Uh, within this story to to make it make sense, but I I, I do want to just mention that there is another Christian theory uh, out there, and this one I have heard championed by Justin Brierley. Uh, I don't know that he uh, is hard and set on this particular theory, but uh, I, I have heard it from him uh, that there is a backward regress to uh, the effects of sin. And so, unlike uh, what Randall mentioned, it's not that God made the world with our sin in mind. It was perfect at that point. And then we sinned, but the effects of sin then went back through time and affected the entire universe. Um, And so, excuse me, we wait for that to be healed. And so that uh, the person making this argument would say that... um, uh, at some point in the future, 
the, the world will be healed. Um, and so that would suggest that this is not the state that the world was supposed to be in. It's not the state that the world was in, but that somehow uh, there are there's a there's a regression of the effect uh, that that goes backward and forward through time. So I, I just wanted to put that out there. Are you familiar with that, uh, Randall? Have you heard that? Uh, well, I, I've heard that under the the label of of basically Dembski's view that. But but on that view, if that's the view you're describing, then then God would create, and because Adam and Eve sinned later on, God creates with the the defects that resulted from the sin. So you can talk in that sense about backward causation. But if you're describing a view in which there was a history in which there was no death, and Adam and Eve came along, and then Adam and Eve somehow rewrote history, and suddenly fossils appeared of animals that had suffered and died when previously there was a history where there had been no death. I don't, that sounds incoherent to me. I'm not sure what to make of that. Yeah, it sounds incoherent to me too, but that is definitely the the, the argument that's being made because the important feature of that argument is that creation was perfect at one point. And so we have to explain its imperfection now. Uh, in Dembski's view, the creation was never perfect. And so those are uh, those yeah. those are would be contradictory. Uh, David, you do you have anything on this? You know, I, like I said, I, I enjoyed reading uh, the chapter, and that's why I picked it. So, um, I, I think there's there's several ways you can look at this, and obviously Christians take uh, different positions here. The main thing is is that there was an alienation from God, and that's what Randall covers. I land more on the Hural side of this. Um, I'm in the danger, so I, I do think that there's a little bit of divergence here from me and Randall, but the main thing, the main thing is that alienation from God, and that's what we as Christians come together in unity on. Okay. Uh, Randall, uh, so I've got, a, I've got another one of these questions queued up. Did you have one that uh, you wanted to, um, to uh, bring forward? No, I'm free with uh, you guys just uh, bringing whatever you want to talk about. And I will say one, one more thing, though, about it, um, about this one. Uh, David Johnson, you said, uh, yeah, well, I, I don't think so because of this reason. But the, the, the question we have to consider is this. Okay, but if I am a Christian, if I believe that there is this natural history of the earth and that the Bible is God's word in some way, and it's talking about brokenness and creation together, then what do I do? So that, yes, there, there may be particular readings that you find to be plausible at first pass, but then if you take in all the evidence of natural history and so on, then what is the best reading? And that's something we want to keep in mind. And I think I do provide something like the best reading or the best range of readings in light of the full course of data that we have available to us yeah. without uh, rejecting Christianity altogether. Right. But I think that you have to start with the... Um commitment to not reject Christianity. I think a real possibility that you have to have on the table is that the Bible is made up of uh, uh, people who are prehistoric, pre-scientific, who didn't know what they were talking about, and who um, who were simply wrong uh, about a, a lot of what they believed. And that's yeah. that's just what you have there. Maybe, uh, maybe it's just false. Well, sure, everything is on the table, but I don't think that in the last few minutes, what you've said 
provides me a sufficient reason to reconsider what I've said. So it's not that I'm closed a priori to your position. I'm just not compelled by it. Sure. And I'm not compelled by yours. If we were if we were treating this more fully like a whole show, maybe I could maybe I could uh, compel you. Who knows? I doubt well, it. see, this is it. Is, is, as I said earlier, <laughs> reasonable people always disagree about things. So we have to, those who need to have everybody agree with them or those people are unreasonable, they're going to be disappointed with the book because I actually think people do reasonably disagree about all sorts of things. Sure. No, I, I actually, I disagree with you there. Uh, no one's going to be disappointed with this book. I don't care what your starting point is. I, um, I, I, and I'm not just saying that to, to say it. I've read a, an awful lot of bad books. Uh, so <laughs> if I read a bad book, I will tell you it's a bad book. I read it so that you don't have to. Uh, this is one that I read and heart- heartily recommend um, people read. Um, chapter 13, um, I thought this one was uh, interesting. This, this is one that a lot of people would consider a very minor point. But I, also, I happen to think of it as another one of those deal breakers. I, I'm uh, kind of emotional about uh, this particular one. When people... Uh, really, I'm sorry, were people really demon-possessed or did they have a natural illness? And uh, I'm, I'm just going to uh, append that, uh, such as epilepsy uh, or some other mil- mental illness, uh, just as an example. Um, so the reason I find this uh, has emotional resonance for me uh, is that I grew up around... Uh, a lot of people uh, who had various illnesses, uh, some of them mental, some of them otherwise, but it was very easy. It would have been very easy to say, oh, look at how that person is acting. They must be demon possessed. What a terrible, terrible thing to say about someone with a disability. That's, that's a, that is itself, if, if I believed in evil, that would be it. Uh, and I find it unforgivable uh, that Jesus uh, the the God man could uh, perpetuate this idea that people who were sick were in fact demon possessed and I don't care if you say well but he healed them anyway well yes but he left the stigma that uh, likewise sick people were somehow demon possessed and if demon-possessed, they must have done something to allow the demon in. I find it unforgivable. Um, and I will leave it there for Randall to uh, defend. So, yes, we have uh, these passages. And I like how you throw the gauntlet down, by the way. Actually, let me say this first. is is There's, of course, many people, like you said, who have been treated with all sorts of cruelty and inhumanity because of misdiagnosis. Now that misdiagnosis is sometimes spiritual, but sometimes it's all sorts of other things. I mean, I think that, um, you know, throughout much of the 20th century, people were getting like lobotomies, for example, and it was an absolutely horrendous way. And it was, it was science in that case, right? Misbegotten science that was leading to heinous treatments. So uh, we find this throughout the course of spectrum of human opinion that people have been abused and suffered greatly because of misdiagnosis. But, but the, the weight of your objection here so, uh, is to back up. And, and so when we talk about demon possession, and I point out that in the chapter, yeah, a lot of these people, they, they appear to evince certain characteristics that could be understood to be grand mal epileptic seizures. 
Perhaps there are other things present, like dissociative personality disorders or something like that as well in some cases. And so if that is the case, and then Jesus heals them, and really it was, it was epilepsy rather than demons, then you say, I don't even care if they were healed. I find it unconscionable that the further implication of that would be that people who have epilepsy are stigmatized as being demon-possessed. So the first thing, though, that I want to say is, uh, this is another concept of accommodation. So the idea is that in that context, uh, the, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to announce the kingdom of God. He's performing miracles. He's bringing healing to people who need it. And what he does is, let's assume it for the sake of argument, that the only thing going on in a particular case is epilepsy. So what he does, however, is that they understand it to be demon possession. So then Jesus accommodates to their understanding of demon possession because his point is that he wants to bring about healing to the person rather than to give them a life lesson into the nature of the, the origin, the etiology of this particular illness. Well, then that's what he does. I think within that context, that is a perfectly justified way to proceed. And I don't think that Jesus is necessarily now culpable for the fact that 1800 years later, 2000 years later, a Pentecostal might misdiagnose epilepsy as demon possession. Uh, so that that is, is part of my response. Another part of my response is to say that the fact that something can have natural correlates like be epilepsy does not exclude the possibility that that could be an expression of demon possession as well in that context. So it doesn't mean that epilepsy generally is demon possession. That wouldn't follow at all. But it would simply follow that Jesus could have exercised a person and also healed them in the res as a result of certain phenomenologies that look like epilepsy. So that's possible as well. Well, so that that only goes so far with me. Um, as I as I said, this has some emotional resonance. Uh, with me, and so if I am a bit more harsh on this point uh, than it seems like the point requires, uh, you know, there there there's other stuff going on uh, here behind the scenes with me. But I would I would simply say that uh, there's an example in the Bible where the uh, there was a man who was blind, and his disciples asked uh, Jesus, "Well, you know, why is this man blind? Who sinned? Uh, you know, was it his parents or was it him?" And Jesus had the the good grace uh, at that time to say, no, you are misattributing uh, what you're seeing. This is not a, a matter of someone's sin. Uh, and so one can appreciate that in that story. Uh, when someone brings a person uh, who is demon-possessed to Jesus, he should also have the good grace uh, to say, look, you are misattributing uh, demonic influence here. This is not uh, demon-possessed. Uh, this person uh, is sick, and I'm going to heal him. But understand that I am healing him of a sickness. I am not exercising demons from him. And if he exercises demons uh, in a way that just makes him look uh, better than he is, you know, maybe they wouldn't have been as impressed if he had uh, healed epilepsy as they would be of a man who could cast out a demon. So he lets them think that he's casting out a demon. That's That kind of chicanery, I'm sorry, that's not... Um, acceptable to me. And the idea of uh, accommodation, he's just accommodating what they think. He's not uh, you know, correcting them because it's not as important. That would be a little bit like saying uh, that if Jesus came back, uh, uh, if, if Jesus had come at the time when I was a child, uh, there were plenty of good white Christians uh, who to my face have called me a nigger without without any particular malice in their heart. And, and 
I can, I can imagine this accommodating Jesus of yours coming along and saying, yes, but I can forgive even niggers. Uh, isn't that a, isn't that great? He can he can forgive us. Well, no. What he should say, I, I I won't go further with what he should say. But this is the kind of thing that you are suggesting with accommodation, uh, and I find it I find it repugnant uh, that he would masquerade uh, as casting out a demon when there is no demon. I yeah I I I think that that the n-word uh, comparison you drew there is is certainly a highly emotional one but i think it's a misguided one i don't think that's what's going on here uh, one other possibility is is um that uh so we have this theology of that that christ uh, emptied himself when he became incarnate so we talk about that in, in philippians 2 paul talks about him emptying himself and so when he emptied himself, one of the things he gave up was omniscience in terms of his the exercise, human exercise of omniscience or knowledge of all things. So we actually have at least a couple points explicitly, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus grows in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and human beings. So he, he adopted the thought forms of the culture around him to some degree and then had those as the constraints of his knowledge. So, for example, when Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, is it possible that he thought the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds? Yeah, it's possible. But but to miss the point is he had accommodated to the limited understandings of the culture of his time. But the main point is the kingdom of God and how it grows, and that's the transcendent principle. It's possible that Jesus accommodated to, to the understandings of of mental illness in terms of demon possession at that time, and that would be a non-culpable accommodation. I don't think that that is anything like uh, the use of racial slurs set against the backdrop of the oppression and slavery of a particular people group. Um, and so he could have accommodated in that time in thinking it was in fact demon possession, but he nonetheless was healing epilepsy. It is also possible, as I've said, that in fact it was demon possession and he was in fact in healing healing people of demon possession. I gave a specific example in, in the chapter of, about Bruce Olson accommodating to the understanding of the Motoloni people. I'm uh, wondering if you took offense at that one as well. Do you think that that's in, in, intrinsically wrong, that it's lying for, for Bruce Olson to... And Well, let me say it. For, so for those who haven't obviously read the chapter, so Bruce Olson wants to doesn't want to shut down the, the witch doctor of the culture, of the community village, but rather work with that person. And so he wants to heal people of pink eye, which they attribute to various spiritual agencies. And what he does is use teramycin, I believe it's called, which is like an antibiotic on their eye. And he allows the witch doctor to use that as well so that together they can heal the population of pink eye. And what they understand it to be is that they've gotten rid of the spirits that were creating the pink eye. And in fact, they use modern medicine to do it. And that was Olson's accommodation to the culture at the time. And do you think that was intrinsically wrong and evil? I think it's dishonest, but I think that uh, I don't have a I don't have a problem with it if that's the only way he could get them to take the medicine. So I I actually don't think that one has to be perfectly honest all the time. Honesty can lead to a lot of death and suffering, and if you can uh, avoid that with uh, a little dishonesty, great. I'm all for dishonesty, but I don't think that's what's going on in the Jesus story because once again he had no trouble in other places saying your understanding of what's going on is not is not correct. 
he didn't mind confronting people uh, with their own ignorance and their own false notions. And so he picked, uh, picked and chose uh, where he was going to do that. And so you might think that my use of the N-word uh, is uh, just playing for emotion here. But I think that from a Christian perspective, uh, labeling an entire group of people, of innocent people, as demonic is worse. I actually think that's worse than the N-word here. Um, and so, um, yeah, I... I um, so th- there's I can't, another. I can't write with that one. <laughs> yeah. There's there's one more thing here I want to say, and then I'd maybe like to to hear other David uh, and and what David Russell thinks. But but the, let me just say one more thing is, so the assumption underlying all of this that people who are demon possessed are therefore evil, right? And they're th- these evil people. That would be an incorrect understanding. People who are demon possessed are stricken with a malady as surely as any other person, and so. Uh, it's simply wrong to think of, of people like that, that they are evil. No, they, they are a person who's who's being subjected to an external evil force that needs to be removed, but they themselves should not be stigmatized for that reason. Well, great, but they're still not going to get a job. <laughs> you know, you're not going to show up for the job. Oh, yes, by the way, I'm demon-possessed. Um, that's <laughs> So, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't think that helps, but uh, yeah, Russell, what do you, what do you got? Buddy? I think you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Randall's just giving you <laughs> options here, you know, and yet you don't buy some of those options, but it doesn't mean that they're not plausible. Yeah, I, think I think you're that's calling the of going. people who are disabled a molehill. No, and, and no. I don't mind speaking up <laughs> for those people who not. don't have a voice. Absolutely not. That's okay. that's your assumption. And th- no, I think. In, it, you know, just in my opinion, I think he did cast out demons. I think he actually did. But, I, you know, I didn't get this far in the chapter, so I, I don't want to comment too much. But, yeah, I think he uh, he exercised demons. I mean, that's what it says. I think he, he even talked to them, you know, and, and the demons spoke back, you know, and told right. them they were yeah, legion, that, you know. That's so why I, I the story think- would be so much worse if if it wasn't demons, if it was something else. Yeah, and, but, uh, but you know, I think yeah. Randall's. But just to be fair, I think Randall's giving you options. You know that that it could be this. You know, he's trying to say, okay, it could be accommodation and stuff like that. I and you know, I don't have a problem with with people giving other options out there. Uh, now, I might take issue with those options if they offended me too. So, I mean, I I, I hear where you're coming from, and I sympathize. But yeah, he's just given options out there so i i really don't have anything worthwhile to say on it okay all right well that was fun hey randall do you have time for two more because i I got one more um that i want to cover but do you have time for two more sure all right david i'm gonna let i'm gonna let you pick one um before i give you uh, give my last one and if you happen to pick the one that i had chosen for my last one <laughs> then we'll just do the one are we gonna talk about why does god torture people in hell is that is that your your one david no but i seriously thought i hovered over that one a long time and i thought oh <laughs> um because this great discussion that we've had it's just going to devolve to that one <laughs> but <laughs> but since but since you mentioned it i think I think um, I think we should at least touch on it. Now, Randall, you may not uh, know we did a um, um, a roundtable uh, last season on hell, 
and uh, I had uh, the incomparable Chris Date, uh, whom whom I very much enjoy. I don't know if you know Chris, but yeah. he's he's yeah. very conservative. Uh, he's more conservative than I was. Uh, but he's such a nice and gentle um, guy when you when you get to know him. Um, it it his his niceness seems so incongruent with his with his ideas of hell. Um, well, oh yeah, but his I mean he takes an annihilationist perspective, which which certainly while he's conservative in certain respects, that's more of a progressive yes. view you could say. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's possible to be as nice as Chris and take a eternal conscious torment view like for instance my co-host who was also on that show uh david russell you uh you still uh giving your vote for eternal conscious torment i do okay just just checking you know just to label it that you know it's you know gail's perspective how would you label it you know what the the moniker has been out there so long i'm just not gonna I'm not going to change it. Right, I'm, not, I'm not That's taking funny. anything back. So, the, the, only yeah, way, I, the only way I would change it is to say it's, it's really eternal conscious torture. It's not just torment. It's, it's a punitive judgment on people, which is the infliction of intense emotional and physical suffering for the purposes of punishment. And that's torture. So right. that is a pretty extraordinary view, I think. And, and I would say even if you take away the, the physical aspect of it and just say it's, it's mentally um, – uh, discom- discomforting. Uh, that's still torture. Absolutely. Um, so you know, that- ima- imagine that that a guy is is uh, chained up on a wall, and then there's this guy there sharpening knives and looking at him, and that's all he ever does. I mean, that would be itself absolutely horrifying, right? <laughs> and that he never inflicts any physical torment on the person, but it, the psychological torment would be unbelievable as well. Right. And I uh, so look, this this is a really easy one, though, from the questioning perspective. Uh, why does God torture people in hell? Uh, Randall's answer is he doesn't. Uh, next question. But I would like to just add that next question, because when I wrote this down in my notes, I I left out the space on purpose. It's not a typo, guys. Uh, it goes with the next piece. And so I just want to ask that, too. This is not my other question. Um uh, this is this is a part of the same question. Uh, not my fault. Uh, why would God? Um, why would God resurrect people <laughs> only to kill them again? And so, uh, whereas you uh, would say, well, you know, I, I'm more kind and more gentle. Uh, I believe in annihilation, not torture. And yet, you still have a God who, you know, after a person has, uh, let's say, died horribly in a fire. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they have COVID. <laughs> they're on an uh, they're on an uh, incub- what do you, what do you call it the uh, ventilator the ventilators. Uh, they're they're in great pain, and then the hospital burns down, and uh, no one comes to save them, and so they slowly burn over the hospital. And they were slightly too evil, and so uh, after all of that, God says, "Not good enough, damn it!" Uh, and uh, they're resurrected to receive their next punishment. <laughs> so, uh, help me, uh, Randall. How's that better? We get to the, we get to the truth of what David's really trying to get at here right <laughs> yeah. now, because I asked this question to see what his problem was with it, Randall, not really to see what your problem was with it. <laughs> so there's a, yeah, there's a, so there are two questions here. Um, I mean, on, on the first one though, so I, I do point out that, uh, 
the most sort of attractive way, if that's the right word, or the least offensive way or the easiest way to, to accept, to understand perpetual suffering forever is if it is self-imposed rather than externally imposed, as in the words of C.S. Lewis, that the gates of hell are locked on the inside, that God simply turns people over to their own self-destructive cycles. Uh, but Mia comes back on that and gives an example. Well, if, if somebody was self-loathing and inflicted torture upon themselves because they hated themselves so much, the rest of us wouldn't say, well, you know, he's choosing that for himself and we would just allow him to inflict misery to no end upon himself forever. Rather, we would stop what he was doing. And yet God, on the more gentle C.S. Lewis view, uh, God allows people, steps aside and allows them to, to inflict suffering uh, and anguish upon themselves forever. So that gives appeal to the annihilationist view, but uh, the annihilationist view is not simply the view that God snuffs you out when you die. It is that there is a general resurrection to judgment posthumously. Uh, and so this is uh, where David Johnson's objection comes in. Well, so maybe that's good that God doesn't allow them to suffer forever, but why does he go through the rigmarole of bringing them back into existence only to destroy them again? Uh, and so one of the, the issues that I consider in that chapter is the possibility that, well, if a person just dies, uh, then they're, they're not actually experiencing the consequences of their specific actions. So the point of a resurrection to judgment is that a person then experiences a punishment for the actions that they undertook in terms of actively rebelling against God and, and rejecting him and so on. Uh, now, that is one, I think, in, in the end of that chapter, where certainly Mia is not satisfied with that. Um, and I think that I would, the one thing I would want to append at the end of that is that a Christian can take that view, believe that there is a general resurrection to judgment, but they can also be a hopeful universalist. In fact, I argue that every Christian should be a hopeful universalist. So there is, uh, there is some evidence scripturally, and one can argue in a broader plane, philosophically, theologically, that ultimately all people are at some point reconciled to God and Jesus Christ. And Christians ought to hope that that is in fact the eventuality, that that is in fact what happens in the end. In the same way that if, let's say you buy a lottery ticket, you might not believe that you will win, but you certainly ought to hope you will win. So we ought to hope everybody wins. Uh, and there's something fundamentally defective in any Christian who would not hope that everybody is ultimately reconciled to God in Christ. And so I think that hopeful universalism ought to lie in the background of the whole conversation, even as we might adopt different views as to what we think will actually be the case. Sure. Uh, and I, I do appreciate the heart of uh, people who uh, espouse hopeful universalism. Uh, so I, I just want to say, um, you know, of, of all of the uh, stances a person could take, um, uh, you know, I think, they're, I think they're kind of all awful uh, when there's a hill on the table. But I think hopeful universalism says a lot more about the person uh, who's who's presenting that than the Bible or Christian doctrine per se and I and I really like what it says about the person uh, that said I when I was a Christian I would not have um, joined you in hopeful universalism uh, and I, I would like to think that it wasn't because I was a terrible person although I think I probably was a terrible person uh, I think though that from my perspective, I would either have to be saying, well, the, the doctrine of uh, 
eschatology and what what we should expect to happen is so complicated that no one could understand it. You can never know. Uh, so, you know, we can talk about heaven and hell, but maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong about uh, hell. Maybe we're wrong about heaven. Maybe we're wrong about all of it. We just can't know. Uh, and so let's just hope for this better thing. I think that it kind of undermines the the, 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 your ability to teach strongly on those subjects. And the other thing is to say, well, you know, we do know what the Bible says, but uh, let's hope that God changes his mind because the punishment that he has right now is just so cruel. It's just so bad. There's no way to, um, to, to make it good. Let's just hope that, that we can change his mind. Um, so I think on, on those two counts, hopeful universalism would not have worked uh, for me at that time. I can say, though, that when I was a Christian, I've never heard another Christian espouse hopeful universalism. They were either outright universalists, and I dismissed them, <laughs> uh, or they believed uh, that there was some kind of um, uh, definite punishment uh, with, with no room for hoping for anything else. So uh, just a perspective that you uh, may not be familiar with from uh, people who are still Christians, and they may not... Uh, agree with you. I don't think it means that they're bad people. I think that they are trying to be uh, faithful to to their their what they believe is the truth of of, of the Bible. Well, I yeah, I, I'll, I was I'll just, just gonna, gonna okay, go ahead. And I was just gonna add, you know, if any Christians out there listening and you're devoid of any type of hope, then you got bigger problems than your theology, you know, or what you believe about Scripture. You got a, a volitional problem that you need to check. Anyways, yeah, that, that's, I was just going to well, actually that. that's a nice segue because I was um, like when when Rob Bell's book came out on broaching the topic of hopeful universalism and that then Ray Comfort wrote a, a critique of it. And he said, well, if and I'm paraphrasing here, right, if if uh, Rob Bell's correct, then, you know, pedophiles and Nazis and all these horrible people make it into heaven. And there is something there of the of the parable of the workers in the fields to my mind. So, you know, I've been working out in the fields all day and I'm going to get a denarius. And then these awful people who came at 5 p.m., they're also going to get a denarius, a full day's wage. They're going to get admitted into paradise. And Jesus, I take it, is trying to help us recognize that we're all undeserving recipients of grace. And if God's grace is more radical than we can fathom, then that should be just a grounds for us to be even more willing to praise him and be thankful. And if there are certain groups that you don't want there, then I think that's a problem. Now, David Johnson, so I, I agree with you that that like, people, they're not necessarily bad people because they don't realize that hopeful universalism is an option. In fact, it's not only just an option, I think we should all recognize it in the background because that's because they've never been introduced to the fact that there are passages, a multiplicity of passages in Scripture that talk about the reconciliation of all things, including all persons to God, and that that's the natural reading of those texts. And so those texts could be, in fact, the control text that you use to ground a universalist doctrine, as well as, again, various theological, philosophical reasoning. So recognizing that that's a possibility, a mere possibility, even if it is an implausible one on the face of it, it should nonetheless be a ground for us to uh, hope. And that's all that you need. Just like one lottery ticket in a vast lottery is enough ground to hope that you win the lottery. Okay. So let's move on to our last last one. Uh, this one is obvious. Um, this is one where if uh, we have people from the audience reading the book, and I know that we will, uh, they will 
excoriate me for not asking uh, this one. It's the last one. <laughs> it's um, it's the one that you couldn't finish the book without uh, writing. Uh, why does God allow uh, the most horrific evils? Um, this is, um, you know, simply put, the, the problem of evil. Obviously, we're not going to prosecute this um, today to its fullest extent, but I would like to see if we can at least uh, narrow uh, some piece of discussion uh, around the idea of a God who allows some evils but not others. So it, it do, it's, it's not quite consistent to say, well, God just allows us to do what we want to do because we have free will, and God never intervenes on free will. Well, yes, he does. So uh, that's, that's, prob- that's a problematic um, position for the Christian to take. Uh, but it's equally problematic to say, well, but God, um, God uh, influences everything so that, um, you know, even when we do wrong, we're actually doing God's will uh, because that's a, that's a part of the plan uh, that he made from the beginning. But we, we have a problem there uh, with consistency uh, in at least explaining that. So God does, in fact, allow some things and intervenes uh, and stops others. One example that I would give of this so that there's... Um, you know, you you have some idea of where my thinking is. Uh, in the Old Testament, you had God uh, interfering and picking and choosing who would become pregnant and who would not. Uh, this is this is about as natural a process uh, as you get. Uh, but God uh, would, as a punishment, sometimes say, "You can't get pregnant. No baby for you." Um, and then as a reward uh, to another, say, okay, it doesn't matter that you can't naturally get pregnant. I'm going to make sure that you do. And so it raises the question, well, why do we even have a Hitler? I mean, this, this whole go, go back in time and stop Hitler. Why should we do that? God, God could have stopped it at birth. He, he didn't have to allow Hitler's mother to get pregnant. And so he does allow some horrific things, it seems, and he stops some horrific things uh, you know, weather events might be another thing. So anyway, the, this is kind of the the thought that I had to kind of narrow down this problem of evil a little bit. Uh, Randall, if you understand where I'm coming from, what what do you do with that? I just thought of uh, the dead zone, by the way, if, if anyone's yeah. seen that old movie or, or read the book. So the idea is there's this guy, he's has a certain clairvoyance where you can see the future. And then he sees that this politician, if he's allowed to become, I think it's president, then, then he would uh, bring about world war three. And so then he shoots him at a campaign event. Yes. But um, I mean, I I think in the, in, in the back and forth between Mia and myself, it boils down to um, looking at a particular evil, a horrific evil in the world. And then asking the question, can I see, that God could not have a morally sufficient reason to allow that? Or can I not see uh, that God could? See, if I, if I believe that I can see, yeah, there's no possible way that God could ever have allowed that. Well, then I have, I've got a reason to consider skepticism or atheism. But if I'm at the point of saying, I think that we simply lack 
the epistemic access to the full range of reasons God could have to allow things to give me the confidence to speak with confidence that, yeah, there's no reason God could have to allow that. Then I think I can still be a Christian theist in conviction and recognize that, in fact, God may have reasons to allow that. Now, in terms of the the bigger conversation that you raised about uh, meticulous providence of God controlling all things, and if he controlled it, then do we have fatalism and we ought not interfere with anything? Now, there's just a bigger conversation there between open theists and Calvinists and Arminians as to how to understand providence and free will. And I think that is a larger conversation, which we could certainly have. But I think it takes us a little bit beyond the immediate question. And the immediate question being, does evil provide a a sufficient reason to doubt God's existence or to believe with some conviction that God does not exist? And this is one of those points where I think people can reasonably disagree. And we have such a diversity of experiences of evil in our own lives. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, the, the question, when, when you process the question of, of Jesus healing people of cerebral palsy, possibly, uh, and that, that you looked upon that with the, 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 the range of experience of somebody who's seen how the kind of fallout of misdiagnosing mental illness and physical ailments can have, then that gives you a particular insight into that and, and a raised level of skepticism that another person might not have. And so it's the same thing with evil generally. Is, And so at the very least, I want to say in this chapter that there's reasonable space for a person to look at even the worst evils and think, you know what, um, it seems to me God could still have a reason to allow that even if I'm not confident I can say what that is. And in fact, I think generally speaking, we ought to beg off on saying what things are. Because I think when you begin to offer accounts for why God allows specific evils, that you quickly run into trouble. Um, and especially because it's not just an intellectual problem, it's always an immediate visceral problem, an experience problem. And we ought to always be sensitive to that. Okay, yes. no, uh, not yet. I'm sorry. I, I can't. I, <laughs> just you got to jump in. Okay, fine. I no, no. Go ahead, David. I'm go, so go, provoked. Go. Um, go, so no, I'm. I'm okay, on. here, here it is. Real quick, real quick. Um, yes. Okay. So all of that sounds reasonable, but at the end of the day, uh, there are people at the end of these hypotheticals. So just uh, as an example, um, someone who uh, lost their uh, child in uh, gun violence uh, may have been a random shooting. In fact, I read the, uh, uh, was hearing, reading just the other day, 42 year old woman uh, who was in her apartment in bed, <laughs> sleeping, <laughs> um, got hit by a stray bullet uh, in the head and uh, was killed. Just the, the randomness of it. Uh, this happens to children, uh, not just to 42-year-old uh, women. And uh, it also happens where there are bullets uh, flying and there are children who are not hit by these bullets. Um, and so, you know, the person who has their child spared, uh, if they're a Christian, the first place they go to is, God spared my child. But the woman whose child was not spared, who might also be a Christian, now has reason uh, for uh, a, a dispute here because God did not spare her child and her child was just as innocent. 
Uh, and if God is, in fact, making these decisions about, I'm going to spare this one, I'm not going to spare this one, it leaves uh, we humans without any information to make up stories that God had a good reason for my child to be alive, but he didn't have any good reason for your child to be alive. And, and I think that that's very problematic. I'll, I'll just stop there, zip, Russell. Well, I mean, you're hitting on the emotional problem of evil, definitely. Um, but I, I think what Randall said, you have to be careful because otherwise you're going to be constructing theodicies on the spot, and that's never good. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave that one there. Um, so, I mean, Randall, you have anything to say to that? Uh, well, I think that, that uh, what David Johnson articulated there is I, I want to lay it out like this. So some seemingly random event like that bullet, a straight bullet killing a, a young woman when she sleeps or something. Two different ways to interpret that here. One way is, well, sometimes stuff happens for no reason at all. Another reason, another way to interpret that event is sometimes these horrible things happen, but a God of unimaginable justice, love and mercy has some greater reason to allow them to happen. And that will be made clear to us someday. Given those two scenarios, I would rather live myself in the world in which there is some God of unimaginable love, justice and mercy who allowed those terrible things to happen for some reason that we will understand someday than to live in the world in which shite happens on occasion and people just get ground up in the gears of the universe for no reason at all. It, I do recognize that some people disagree with me. Some people are actually more offended by the prospect of this unimaginably loving, just, merciful God allowing things to happen. And they'd rather live in a universe in which stuff just happens for no reason at all. Uh, but I'm inclined to think yeah. the theistic option is better. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I, so, and I that's actually, the thing. And that's the thing, David, is when you give these type of critiques, you're actually got to like jump over to our worldview in that aspect and and start making your accusations because it's an internal problem for us that we have to deal with. Sure. So well, remember, I, I spent most of my life there. I will never yeah. live long enough so that I live longer as an atheist than I was a Christian. Um, so that said, um, I would rather this be uh, the kind of world uh, where things happen uh, without a God intervening. I wouldn't say for no good reason. There, there are good reasons why those things happen. Those good reasons have to do with things like mental instability, economic um, instability, um, in po political uh, wrongheadedness. There are, there are all kinds of reasons why those things happen. And when we uh, are realistic about those reasons, we can do something about it. Uh, we, can, we can begin to make repairs so that future generations don't have to suffer that way. If it's left into the hands of a God, well, you know, God has his reasons. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, we, we really are stuck with shit happens at that point. And that's, that's, not, a, that's not a place uh, that I find satisfying. Uh, and I don't find the naturalistic uh, solution to, or, or the naturalistic perspective to be defeating at all. I think it's empowering. But, well, the one, uh, that's one, thing I'll, one thing I'll okay. say for conclusion, uh, my, maybe my last word on this is... All right. In, is, if, um, go ahead and take this uh, time to uh, make it a general wrap-up. Sure. So the, the, uh, to, to recognize, to, to have the belief 
that that God has morally sufficient reasons for allowing bad stuff that happens it is not a reason not for us not to try to prevent evil from happening because what we have are moral commands that are obligatory to us to prevent evil wherever possible it is not then that is consistently held with the idea that whatever evils we fail to prevent are evils that God had a morally sufficient reason to allow but our goal, an overriding commitment, should be to try to prevent evil wherever we can. So it's not a laissez-faire, fatalist, well, sera, sera, whatever God's decided will be, but rather we are called to prevent evil wherever we can, and we should be the agents of that change and heralds of God's kingdom in the world. Anyway, thank you a lot, guys, for uh, for taking the time to interact and uh, for not pulling punches. I think that, uh, David, you made good on the punching in the face here a couple times, so... <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it very much, and, and I enjoyed having David Russell as, as a backup as well. So it's been a good exchange. Well, clearly, it's yeah. the hats versus the well, patch. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's but, nice to meet you, Randall. Yeah, you too. Randall, I'm looking forward to you opening season four. Um, and uh, for some miracle that allows there to be a season four. <laughs> so uh, this has been great. Um I, uh, Randall is one of my uh, favorite people to talk to, uh, and one of the reasons is I've had the, the very rare fortune of being able to uh, sit down and talk to uh, Christian academics, and um, they, they are a different kind of beast, uh, I think. Uh, they, they think differently and talk differently than the average person in the pew, and you, you have to do a little bit of homework and uh, in, in order to understand what it is they're saying. And, you know, after they're done, you've got to, you've got to hit the books and study a little bit and do a lot of thought and try to work it out. And, uh, you know, it, you know, they're, they're smart people. Uh, they're smarter than you, uh, folks. Uh, trust me on this. I'm a pretty smart guy. I feel stupid talking to um, uh, a lot of these people. Uh, they've, they've all been very nice people. Uh, I love them, but they, talk like academics you can talk to randall rouser and you can still learn things that you didn't know uh before but randall rouser doesn't make you feel stupid uh he doesn't make you feel like oh well let me hit the dictionary uh real quick so that i can understand exactly what he just called me um you, you can understand uh randall when he speaks you can understand randall when he writes uh, and I think this is one of the uh, greatest qualities of a, of a good teacher. Uh, I've heard it said that if you can't explain what you mean uh, to like a six-year-old, you don't understand it well enough. Uh, Randall does understand it uh, well enough. And so I appreciate that. I think that C.S. Lewis probably had uh, that quality. And this will be the only thing, uh, good thing I ever say about C.S. Lewis. I'm not a C.S. Lewis fan. But I think that uh, he was very good uh, at breaking down concepts for uh, in ways that anyone can understand. So I appreciate that, Randall. And uh, don't ever change a thing. Uh, Russell, did you have anything to say before we go? No, no, I'm I'm good. Okay, I'd like to get Randall on uh, my show at one time. Hey, uh, talk about your show real quick, because even though you are now uh, the new face of Skeptics and Seekers, that you're still the old face of 
proselyte and uh, apostasy. Proselytize or apostatize. Okay, yeah. Say that one more time because I think I butchered it. Proselytize or apostatize. Yeah, no, I nailed it. Um, (laughs) So uh, what's that that show about? What what, what are you doing with that? Well, we do debates and we do interviews and we also started a, a commentary segment on uh, we critique videos, um, um, me and David Paulman, my uh, co-host, and we we just go through and uh, uh, talk about it's we call it PRA Raw, and we just go critique videos. But the the main thrust of the show is the debate side and the interviews that we we do. We debated, uh, you know, we've had David on there to debate, you know, and and um, we've had. Uh, you know, Justin Brierley's been on the show, and so is uh, Hugh Ross, and we've interviewed them. So, I mean, it's just it's just a show to try to get information out to people, to be able to like look at different views and so forth. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to join uh, your show uh, for for some of the video um, critique things. I, I oh, enjoy yeah. that sort of thing, and rather than doing that okay. on SNS, I'd rather just join someone else who's doing it. So. Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. maybe we'll get you in there. I don't want to soon, reinvent yeah. the wheel. I, I might have you. Uh, I might have you comment on the morgue video that we're looking into. Great. Hey, Randall, do yeah. you uh, do you ever do any uh, debates? Uh, I don't see you on YouTube debating people. Why not? He was on Modern Modern Day Debate not too long ago. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I've done a lot of debates online. Hey, send, send me send me a couple of links to that so I can include them in the show notes. Um, people, um, you should really get to know. Uh oh! Wait a minute. <laughs> Sorry, Siri thought that I was invoked. I've got you see. I've got this iPad off screen, yeah. and so when you see me looking over here, I'm reading my notes over here, and and I didn't anyway. Look, embarrassing. You were, Whatever. You were uh, you were debating TJ Jump and Dillahunty, right? On um, yeah, I, that's yeah. one debate I did. I've done around probably five or six debates in the last few months online YouTube. So yeah. you debated uh, Dillahunty, huh? Yeah, and uh, I did one do? that included Jim James White on the apologetic method. I did Godless Engineer on historical Jesus. That was an informal exchange. Uh, well, I don't know. I think I did fine. Uh, and then I, I did I one on. I got to get those links on the show because I I want to see those myself. I did not know about those. Um, Dillahunty probably crushed you. He he's. I, okay. <laughs> anyway, that's bias coming out, Randall. Don't listen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want to see Randall get crushed by somebody. <laughs> so uh, a thing that I have not seen before. Good. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, James White. What was that one about? By the way, uh, I like James White. Um, I don't agree with anything that he says, but I actually like him. What did? Uh, what was that about? We did. We had a four way debate on apologetic method. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I want to see that. Uh, what, what position did you take? I'm a reformed epistemologist. Oh, all right. So all right. as that as that works, what that means is that I I tend to focus on addressing defeaters to Christian belief, rather than emphasizing as much providing positive arguments yeah. for yeah. Christian belief, because I believe it is like I don't believe arguments are evidentially required for for rational belief or knowledge. Okay. Yeah. So so we're about to do a roundtable on our show. Uh, with apologetic methodology, I'll be uh, defending the accumulative case methodology. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So cool. Uh, next week, it's going to be David and I talking about something. Uh, ha- haven't exactly worked it out yet. 
but it's going to be good. It's going to be great. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, Randall. Uh, make sure you click on his links in the show and buy the book. Buy the book. Uh, what's the name of the book again? One last time, Randall. Conversations with my inner atheist. All right, folks. Until next time, this has been Skeptics and Seekers, Season 3. Can you believe it? Bye-bye, everybody.